It's a good morning, right? Good morning. Do you have your Bible this morning? Good. You need to turn to Philemon. Philemon chapter 1, which is the only one. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from the pew rack right there in front of you so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. Last week, I introduced you to our study of Philemon, which will occupy us for about the next six weeks or so. Talked about the uniqueness of this letter when compared to Paul's other writings. Told you that there is a deeply personal and tender tone that we're probably not super familiar with coming from Paul. Paul, who seems to be always ready for an argument, always on a mission, always business. Here he seems very personal. Told you also that there's a lack of doctrinal substance in this letter, as opposed to all of his other letters that are just full of doctrine and theology in this letter. Paul does not articulate the gospel. He does not speak of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He does not speak of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The companion letter that traveled with this one to Philemon, the book of Colossians, the letter to the church of Colossae, uh, it's full of that kind of stuff. So if you're looking for that in conjunction with Philemon, you need to read Colossians. Rather, this letter focuses on the impact of that gospel on those who do believe it. Those who have been changed by God's grace, by God's power, through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This letter of Philemon is more about the application of the gospel than the articulation of the gospel. He's going to assume the gospel and apply it to the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus and himself, really. And kind of the big theme of all of our study of Philemon is going to be that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes absolutely everything. It changes everything within us by grace through the gospel. God gives us a new heart and a new life and a new mind that leads to a new way of living and a new way of thinking and a new behavior. The gospel changes everything within us and the gospel changes everything between us. The gospel doesn't just impact our relationship with God vertically. It impacts our relationship with with each other horizontally. Breaking down walls, breaking down barriers, and bringing us together as one people. Talked to you about those things last week and then gave you a brief overview of the backstory of this letter. Onesimus, who was a slave, probably stole something from his master Philemon and then ran away. I told you about how God brought him providentially into contact with Paul in Rome. Paul was in prison in Rome, 1,300 miles away from Colossae where they lived. And this contact with Paul... Onesimus got to hear the gospel, and God changed his life. God brought him to faith in Jesus Christ, made him a new man. And then Paul, at some point, exhorted Onesimus to go back to Philemon to try to make things right with his master, whom he had wronged. Talked about how this letter that we'll study serves to encourage Philemon to welcome back this useless slave as no longer a useless slave, but a useful brother. Finally, last week I told you for about the hundredth time the parable that Jesus tells about the prodigal son. I wanted that story and the backstory of this letter to be bouncing around in your head as we dive into the text, which we're going to do today. We're going to dive into the text. I've got a great typo in my notes right here. It says, we will now eat three verses today. I don't know what I intended to write, uh, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to eat it. Today, we're going to eat three verses and it will sustain us as we live. Uh, And it's three verses today that you might not think are very meaningful or very powerful. You might think that introductions to letters like this 
are a mere formality and that we would be better off just skipping this to get right to the good stuff. Well, I want to let you in on a little secret and a core value here at First Baptist Church Harrisburg. This is the good stuff. All scripture is the good stuff, right? You see, we believe what the Bible says about itself in 2 Timothy chapter 3. When God's word says, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So it is all inspired. All scripture is inspired. That means it's breathed out of the very mouth of God. Even these introductions, even these formalized introductions to letters are breathed from the mouth of God. You remember when you fell in love with your wife? You fell in love with your wife and you just hung on every word that came out of her mouth? It didn't matter what it was. If it was, hey, uh, I'm out of milk. This is so sweet the way she talks about milk. You remember that? Let's have that with the, with the Bible. Even, even these formal introductions, they're coming out of God's mouth. And so let's hang on them like they're coming out of the mouth of the one that we love most. And this text teaches us that it's profitable. Not only is all Scripture inspired, it says all Scripture is profitable. That means it's good for us. It's to our advantage. It helps us grow and conforms us to the image of Christ. and makes us adequate and equipped for every good work. And if those two things are true... If all Scripture is inspired and all Scripture is profitable to us, then we will preach and study and read all of it. All of it. And that will take us forever. But we've got nothing better to do. And I mean that. I mean we've got nothing better to do. There is nothing better to do than spend our time studying God's Word so that we see His face more clearly. So that's application number one. We're not even done with introduction. That's application number one. It's all inspired, it's all profitable, and so we will study it all. And part of my, my aim today is to convince you of that by mining the depths of this little introduction that we just want to throw away sometimes. And I want to show you that even this formalized introduction is just packed full of riches. And therefore, motivate you to study all of God's Word like we will today. So let's read Philemon. I'm going to read all of it and probably read all of it every week since it's so short. And, and maybe over the next six, seven, eight weeks, we'll have it memorized. Philemon chapter 1, verse 1. God's word says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, 
so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps, perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing you this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention that you owe me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do believe that all Scripture is inspired, that all Scripture is profitable, and therefore we will study all of it, preach all of it. And we pray today that you will open our eyes to see the beauty and the riches in these first three verses. That you will give us understanding. That you will cause us to embrace and accept and submit to your word. And that you will give us strength and energy and power to do what you call us to do today in your word, through your word. We pray that all of this happens not as a result of our sweat and effort, but as a, as a result of your grace, as a gift, a revelation, so that you get the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we'll walk through this kind of word by word, phrase by phrase, see some beauty here. We'll start with Paul. Here, Paul is following the customary form of a letter in his day. Unlike our modern letters where we wait to the very end to sign our name, in ancient letters, the name of the sender would come first. Have you ever gotten a letter today and it either started off really good or really bad and before you read all of it, you turned over to the last page to see who wrote such? I'm the only one that's had that experience in the good and the bad. It's not the way it worked in ancient times. Right off the bat, the sender would identify himself. And I wonder how this made Philemon feel. First word in this letter is Paul. He knows immediately that this is coming from the Apostle Paul. Be like noticing someone's name on the caller ID, right? Or hearing a familiar voice on the other end of the phone. Immediately you know who it is. And given the circumstance, that either sparks in you some joy and gladness or great fear and trembling, right? I wonder what happened in Philemon's heart when he read that first word, Paul. Especially if Philemon is handed this letter by his wicked runaway slave, Onesimus. And the first thing he sees is Paul. And while we're talking about Paul here, we need to remember his story a little bit. Paul was a super religious guy who was so devoted to Judaism that he made a name for himself by persecuting those who were trusting in and following Jesus. He would have followers of Jesus arrested. He would oversee execution. Many followers of Jesus were executed in his day. 
And one day, on his way to cause trouble for the church, he met Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus. And it wasn't a pleasant experience for Paul, but it changed his life forever. Paul went that day from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. He went that day from being full of futile self-righteousness that comes from the law to having the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to his account by faith. That day, Paul went from being a persecutor of the church to being perhaps the greatest missionary and preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that the world has ever known. Paul knew something about a life-changing experience. Philemon knew something about a life-changing experience. And Onesimus, the wicked slave, has now had a life-changing experience. Remember, the main theme of this letter that I want to preach to you is that the gospel changes everything. Paul knew it firsthand. Philemon knew it firsthand. Onesimus knew it firsthand. The question is, are they going to put it into practice between each other? So it starts out, Paul identifies himself, and then he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Here's a fun fact for you. This is the only letter in which Paul identified himself in the introduction as a prisoner of Christ. He usually mentions that he's an apostle and therefore speaks with authority, right? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, not of man, right? He usually starts out that way to flex his authoritative muscle before the people. Sometimes he will refer to himself as a bondservant of Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or slave would be another translation of that word. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Sometimes he doesn't give any identifier, just says Paul to the church at so-and-so. But only in this letter does he refer to himself as a prisoner of Christ. That must be significant, right? In fact, in all of his other letters... He only makes a few references to his imprisonments. Though we know that he wrote many of his letters from jail, in his letters he makes relatively few references to his imprisonment and even fewer identifications as a prisoner. But here in Philemon, in this tiny little short letter, he calls himself a prisoner three times and makes one other reference to his imprisonment. This is a super short letter. And four times he refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is huge, proportionally speaking. And therefore, must be significant, right? Paul is not a guy who is just loose and fast with his words. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And every word comes from the mouth of God. So we need to pay close attention to the fact that he's referring to himself as a prisoner so often. In fact, look through it. It's in verse 1. It's in verse 9. For love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, and uh, now also prisoner. In verse 10, he speaks of his imprisonment. In verse 23, he again refers to himself as a prisoner. So why? Why such emphasis on his imprisonment? I think there are three reasons. Number one, this helps to drive the request for forgiveness home. The fact that he identifies as a prisoner helps drive the request that he's making on Philemon home. What he is asking Philemon to do is hard. It's hard, culturally speaking, to forgive a wicked slave like this. But Paul is not making this request from some ivory tower. He's in jail. He's saying, I'm asking you to do something hard, and I'm well familiar with hard things. This is not a postcard from the beach. Wish you were here, Philemon. Oh, by the way, if you'll forgive Onesimus, that'd be great. Paul, prisoner. 
a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I think first, it drives the request home. I think second, it helps him to identify with Onesimus. I think as we read this letter, we see Paul more identified with Onesimus than with Philemon. And it's good for Philemon to be reminded about this since he has such respect for Paul, such esteem for Paul. Philemon would see Paul as a trustworthy character, worthy of imitation, worthy of following. And Paul is trying to identify himself with that same esteem and respect with Onesimus. He's like, you can't, you can't look at Onesimus down your nose and look up at me because I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I think it helps identify Paul with Onesimus. And thirdly, I think he emphasizes his imprisonment to show that we can serve God no matter our circumstances. That we can serve God no matter our circumstances. In fact, that's the way I wrote it at first and went back and struck it and, and rephrased it. We must serve God no matter our circumstances. Like Paul doesn't get an out in his service to the king because he's in jail. In fact, Paul leverages the time that he's in prison for the sake of the kingdom. Like he's preaching the gospel to folks in Rome. He says that. All of these people, all these guards are hearing the gospel because I'm in prison. All these guys who are watching over me, lording over me, are hearing and seeing the gospel. So we must serve God no matter our circumstances. I think that is part of why he identifies as a prisoner. But there's maybe something bigger going on here. Notice he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why does he say it like that? Why does he say, Paul, a prisoner of Rome? Jesus isn't the one holding him captive, is he? Paul, a prisoner of Caesar. That would be more accurate from the surface, would it not? And yet he identifies himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And I think here we find a huge lesson in the sovereignty of God in all things, good or bad. Paul is, in fact, a prisoner of Rome. But Jesus reigns over Rome. Jesus reigns over Caesar. Caesar isn't doing anything outside of the Lord Jesus' control. And so Paul recognizes that whatever circumstance I am, ultimately it's Jesus who is orchestrating. Now, that's a big lesson. The sovereignty of God in all things, good or bad. In other words, God has a purpose even when life goes sideways. And we see this throughout this letter. We see it certainly in all of Paul's writings. In fact, look at verse 15 of this letter. Paul articulates the same idea of God's sovereignty when he says, For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. So, so Paul is saying, perhaps there's a big cosmic reason why he was separated from you. And if you're Philemon, you say, yeah, because he stole something and ran away. That's why he separated from me. But Paul is able to look beyond that superficial reasoning and see the deep sovereign reason for this. The reason why he stole something and ran away was to get to Rome to hear the gospel and meet Jesus and have his life changed so that you can have him back forever. In other words, Onesimus is not in control. Caesar is not in control. You are not in control. The Lord Jesus Christ is in control. And he is working all things for your good and his glory ultimately. And this is super comforting to us. Now, I read a little bit about this from one preacher and was convicted deeply by the fact that he pointed out that many people 
have this right confessionally, but functionally are struggling. Oh, man, that's me. That's me. Like, there's probably no one in the room that would argue more for the sovereignty of God in all things. No one in the room that, that would articulate more that God is in control of everything that happens in the world. The good things and the bad things. He's ultimately in control of everything. And yet, when my life goes sideways, I get angry and upset and worried and anxious. So confessionally, theologically, doctrinally, I think I'm right. But there are big areas in my life where that is not impacting practically like it should. Paul doesn't seem to struggle with that. From jail, he writes, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Not you, Roman guard, but of Jesus Christ. Let's work on lining our practice up with our confession. I'll, I'll work on that. You guys probably have all that covered, right? Your theology and your behavior line up perfectly, I'm sure. So there's big stuff there when he says prisoner of Christ Jesus. Next he says, and Timothy, our brother. There's a lot of debate about Timothy's role here. Some folks say he's co-author. I don't think he's necessarily co-author. Seems to be singularly coming from Paul to Philemon. There's some other people brought in to witness, but it's from Paul to Philemon. Timothy is his partner in ministry. Perhaps he was with Paul physically as he wrote this. Philemon probably would have known Timothy, so for him to drop his name makes some sense. It's not just me. Timothy's here. Timothy, you know Timothy. He's here with me as well. But maybe the bigger deal is that Timothy is Paul's protege to whom the baton of authoritative ministry will be handed. And so Paul is going to take every opportunity to include Timothy in the matter because Timothy, he wants Timothy to be seen with respect and authority just like him. Because one of these days, Paul's not going to be around. Timothy is. And so he's helping pave the way to see Timothy as an authoritative figure. figure. John MacArthur talks about this. He says that Paul takes every opportunity to include Timothy so that he will be known and respected by the churches as the, quote, heir apparent to the apostolic ministry. Maybe that's why he includes him. Paul and Timothy, our brother. Next, he says to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker. Two identifiers here of Philemon. Beloved brother, really just beloved one. There's affection here. It's not mere acquaintance. It's not just a guy he knows from a distance. Beloved brother, fellow worker. And here we begin to see a picture of Philemon's family developing. These people were really useful in the kingdom work. Because he goes on and says, To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier. Now, if Apphia is Mrs. Philemon, and Archippus is their son, as I believe him to be, then we have here a sketch of a family given to service for the Lord. A family who is hosting a church in their house, a family who one is a beloved brother and fellow worker, one is a sister, a dear sister, one is a fellow soldier, They are a family at the core of what is happening in Colossae. And therefore, this situation is going to be a litmus test for the validity of their faith. This whole business with Onesimus coming back is going to put on display the reality, or not, of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Are they worthy of being leaders in the church? It will be seen in how they deal with Onesimus when he comes back. Notice next, he says, And to the church that is in your house. Now the norm in the first century was for churches to meet in homes. There were not church buildings in this day and age like we know today. But that's not the main thing that's going on here. Like, like I would be missing the point if I gave you an architecture lesson at this point. The main point is that he's including the whole church in the list of recipients to add a massive amount of accountability to this matter. What Philemon does with Onesimus is between Philemon and Onesimus on one level. But it will speak volumes to the watching church and the watching world. The questions on the line here are, does the gospel make a difference? Does the gospel change anything, let alone everything? Or will Philemon and Apphia and Archippus go on living like the rest of the world? Will they do what the lost neighbor would do in this situation? Or has the gospel changed things with them? The fact that Paul invites the whole church to listen in on this adds a massive amount of accountability to the matter. And then he closes this way. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is as close to gospel articulation as you're going to get in this letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, however, is Paul's standard greeting. He uses it in all of his letters at some point. At some point in every single one of his letters, he will use this phraseology. And yet it is powerful and heavy. Grace is the means of salvation, right? How are we saved? By grace. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And what does that produce? Peace. Peace with God and peace with each other. And so here he's talking about the gospel. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and in connecting God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as the sources of grace and peace, he is affirming the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a little lesson here about Jesus as God. We wouldn't speak this way of a man. We wouldn't speak this way of an angel. We speak this way of Jesus. You connect Jesus Christ with God the Father because they are one. So there's a lot going on here, even in this greeting. And I hope that you see that just in our quick glance through it just now. This is not something to be skipped over. This is not something to just, let's just get to the good stuff. There's all kinds of good stuff here. And so we must study it. In fact, that's the first application I want to make today. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable to us. Therefore, read, study, and preach all of scripture. We're doing that. For 10 years, we've been trying to do that. This is really the first time I've gone back and preached something to you for the second time. Right? This is the first letter I preached to you. A lot of you weren't here then. We want to be working through all of it, and that's going to take forever. But we've got nothing better to do. Just preach through all of it, and we'll go slow. Let's be doing that in our private lives, though. Don't just pick and choose where to read and study. Don't be a New Testament only guy. I read the whole book. It's all from the mouth of the one that we love the most. And it's all profitable to us. That's number one. Number two. There's a time for every kind of tone. There's a time for every kind of tone. I told you that in many of his letters, Paul is somewhat confrontational. He's down to business all the time. In this letter, it's more tenderhearted. It's more soft and personal. 
And we saw this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, right? As Paul tells Timothy, when you deal with older women like a, like a mother, the older men, don't rebuke them, right? Treat them as a father. Younger men like your brother, younger women like your sister in all purity. Like we've got to learn how to navigate all of this. If you just have one tone of voice, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble, especially in a group this big, right? So let's recognize what tone is necessary and use the proper tone. I want to learn that more and more in preaching. I, I think sometimes I can be monotonous in my preaching. I want to preach the tone of the text and not just the truth of the text. So I'm trying to learn more and more how to do that. There's a time for every tone. So let's be multitonal in the way we speak. Number three, God is sovereign over all of life. He is. That's the truth. Even over your darkest days, even over your messiest relationships, God is sovereign. Make sure that your confession of that and your function in life line up here. You can have confession without function. I'm, I'm struggling with that. I think you cannot have function without confession. Like if, if, if you've not thought through the sovereignty of God... When life gets messy, you're going you're to be ruined. If you don't see God as sovereign over all things good and bad in your life, when life goes bad, you're going to be ruined. All right? So let's develop a confession. Let's develop a good theology of God's sovereignty over all things good and bad. And I think we're, we're on that track here at First Baptist Church. I think we talk enough about that, that we're on that track. What I think we need to happen for me personally, and maybe for us collectively, is we need to take the next step of having our function line up more with that. So that when we get thrown into jail, we can say, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So that when our, our slave runs away and steals something from us, we can say, it was for this reason he was removed from me. To see God at work even in the darkest days. This preacher I was telling you about said, he said, I wrote some things down this week that might make this a bit more clear about how we live functionally. Here's just my own life. As I read this this week, I was convicted, and I wrote this. For someone who believes that God is in control of all things, and he's working everything that happens in my life together for good, I sure do complain a lot. For someone who believes that everything in my life is under the watchful, gracious, loving eyes of my Father in heaven, I sure do fear and worry relentlessly. For someone who believes that God will always take the harm that others inflict or attempt to inflict upon me and turn it around, I sure do get angry with others easily and carry around loads of bitterness. I read that and was like, this guy's been hanging out in my head. For someone who believes the right things, I sure don't live like it all the time. So let's be working toward that. Right theology should lead to right living. Not going to get to right living without right theology, but just right theology doesn't necessarily guarantee right living. I, I can help with the theology side of it from here. Can't help with the living side of it. That's, that's, that's up to you, me, spirit empowering it. But let's not be satisfied with just right theology. That, maybe that's my heart. Let's not be satisfied with just right theology. Let's work toward right living. And finally, we want to see from this introduction that the next steps that these individuals take will speak loudly to the church and to the world. And it is the same with us. 
When we encounter some trouble, the steps we take will speak volumes to the watching church and the watching world. So let's be careful how we move forward. Let's be careful with how we walk. Demonstrating in our reactions the reality of the gospel in our lives. The reality of the gospel has changed everything with us and changes everything between us. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you that you do change everything by the gospel. That we who are sinners and only deserving of death and hell can be reconciled to you, can be counted righteous, given eternal life, not because of something we do, but because of Christ who died in our place and rose again, because of grace that you give us by faith in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you'll change everything for someone in this room today by the gospel. That you'll give them faith to trust, to rest in Jesus. Repentance to turn away from sin. Boldness to tell the world about what you've done. Resolve to follow Jesus Christ. God, for those who belong to you already, pray that you help us to live our faith. To not have confession that's tucked away, but to have good theology that impacts every moment we live. Help us to see you as the sovereign one and to trust you completely as our Father. Help us as we navigate conflicts to be aware of the watching church, the watching world, to move forward in truth and grace for the sake of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.